hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Uh, Please join me in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come before you this morning and as we prepare to walk through these verses of Scripture from your Word, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to think clearly. Pray that you would enable us to rightly divide the word of God, and we pray, Father, that you would enable your word to land on us in the way that it was intended by the Apostle Paul and by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that through it all, that through your word, you would that you would transform our heart and our character, that you would enable us to humble ourselves before your word, and that we would leave from this place a bit more transformed into the character of Christ. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this, uh, this past Tuesday, some of you may have seen it in the news. It wasn't uh, a major story, Um, but in Abuja, Nigeria, a city with a population of 1.2 million people, a building that was under construction just collapsed. Uh, No, no, um, we don't know why it collapsed. There's no explanation, at least not now. They're still doing the research, but There were many shoppers, apparently, in the nearby neighborhood who found themselves trapped under piles of rubble. As of this past weekend, uh, eight were pulled from the rubble. At least one, unfortunately, has died. And apparently, this is a problem in the nation of Nigeria, which I never knew until this story came out and I did a little more research. Just in the last year alone, for example... In the nation of Nigeria, 10 buildings have suddenly just collapsed. People are in them, they're living their lives, and it just crumbles uh, underneath them, of course, killing many. Lagos, Nigeria, for example, the largest city, a population of 8 million people. In that city alone in the past year, five of those collapses have happened in that one city. This past November was one of the worst 
when 40 people died when a high-rise that was under construction simply, unexplicably collapsed and killing more than 40 construction workers who were trapped beneath the rubble. So as you can imagine, this is, you know, people are clamoring and they are reaching out to their government and calling for higher and stricter standards regarding uh, safety standards and construction standards and how these buildings are built. Because if you can't build a high-rise that's going to stand, then they probably just need to stop building high-rises and keep everything at the one-floor level. What these illustrations demonstrate is that while the foundation of a building is clearly significant, clearly important, right? If you're going to build any kind of structure, you want to make sure that it is on a good, solid foundation. You don't want it to be on the top of a sinkhole or built on shifting sand. But even if you have a great, solid foundation, what goes on top of that foundation is equally significant. Because if what you build on that foundation is of poor quality, of shoddy workmanship, eventually it is going to crumble. Under the least amount of stress, it is going to crumble, and ultimately, people will die. This is what Paul is going to begin talking about here in this section that we're looking at. I say begin, I should say continue talking about. Uh, let's refresh. I know it's been a while, but remember back in verses 5 to 9, Paul used this metaphor of the field in terms of talking about the church. He says to the church in Corinth, you are the field, right? Let's just read it, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul's going to pick up on that at the end of our section here in verses 14 and 15. But we are God's fellow workers. Not that they are fellow workers with God. He means me and Apollos are fellow workers for God in his field. It's God's field. We are fellow workers, one with another. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he begins by using this, this farming, planting metaphor and saying, look, I planted, Apollos watered, you're the field, but God gives the growth. God receives all the glory. We are simply laborers in his field doing that which God has commanded us to do. So Paul says, don't give me any credit. It all goes to God. But then he shifts at the end of verse 9, and he says, God's building. You are God's field. You are God's building. And then he picks up with that metaphor in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else 
is building upon that foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul begins to talk about the fact that he laid this solid foundation. And that this solid foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Namely, it is the gospel, I think is what Paul has in mind. He gave them the pure, unmitigated gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. But remember, as I said previously, the one true gospel must of necessity include more than simply that Jesus came, took on human form, died on the cross for sins, and you have to have faith in him in order to be saved. Some people will hear that and say, well, that sounds right. What's wrong with that? Problem is, the Roman Catholic Church would agree with what I just said. Jesus came and took on human form and died on the cross for sins, and you must have faith in him in order to be saved. And you must fulfill the sacraments of the church. You see, understanding what the gospel is must of necessity include the person and work of Christ. Who is he? What did he accomplish? What did he do? Did he simply crack the door of salvation or did he actually save sinners? Is there something more beyond faith that is necessary or is it simply faith alone? Now, that is not to say, I don't want you to misunderstand, it is not to say that in order for a person to be saved initially, they must understand rightly all of the various nuances regarding the theology and doctrine of the person and work of Christ. It is to say that once they put faith in Christ, if that is a saving faith in the one true Christ, that gospel message must be based on an accurate understanding of who Christ is. So Paul says, I laid a solid foundation for you. I gave you accurately the person and work of Christ. And now you must be careful about how you build on that foundation. Because if what you put on that foundation just like they're discovering in Nigeria. If what we begin to build upon the good foundation of Jesus Christ is shoddy work, poor quality material, it's going to crumble. Eventually, all of your labors and all of the labors of the church will crumble, and listen, people will die. People will die. So this is where Paul picks up, or continues rather, in verses 12 to 13. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifold, for the day will disclose it. But it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, first of all, let me say that Paul here is referring to, or he has in mind at least, Solomon's temple. 
That's what Paul is thinking about. That's what's at the forefront of his mind. That's what's driving this illustration that Paul is now using in these verses. And I say that for three reasons. This is why I think Paul has Solomon's temple in mind. First of all, what he describes matches the description of the Old Testament temple, of Solomon's temple. If you go back and read passages like 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 17, 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 2, what we are told there that when Solomon built his temple, it was bedazzled with all kinds of gold and silver and precious stones and jewels. Paul, I think, clearly has this in mind. But secondly, Paul seems to be echoing the words of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Listen to the words of Malachi, the prophet who prophesies during the 5th century B.C. This is some 80 to 100 years after the Babylon, after the, uh, the Jews have returned from the Babylonian captivities. They are still struggling to rebuild the temple. And Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3, verses beginning in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. So obviously this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and will purify the sons of Levi and will refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the prophet says that God will someday come to his temple and he will refine his people just as a refiner refines gold and silver through extreme heat to remove all of the impurities that she, his temple, his church, his bride might be pure. So Paul seems to be echoing, I think, the words of Malachi chapter 3. And he is moving clearly in that direction because if you look at verses 16 and 17, which we'll look at next week, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? That temple talked about in Malachi chapter 3, you are that temple. God has come to you. He is refining you. He's refining your character. He's refining your heart. He's refining your work. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, i.e., if anyone builds on that foundation in such a way that it crumbles and is destroyed, God will destroy that person for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So I think Paul has in mind Solomon's temple, but he also has in mind 
the New Testament church of God. And so he says, whatever you use to build on the foundation that I have laid, to build on God's New Testament temple, whether it be gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, it will be revealed, he says. He says, for the day will disclose it. What day? The day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. That's what Malachi talked about. God will refine his church as through fire. But this is also the kind of language that is used in other places in the New Testament to talk about the day of judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, for example, verses 7 and 8. I'll start in verse 5. Scripture says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another example is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 verse, verse 10, Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When the Bible talks about the return of Christ, the end of days, the day of judgment, it always talks about that day as occurring in great fire. God will someday return. Christ will return on a white horse, Revelation chapter 19, and he will consume the earth and the heavenly bodies in fire, and there will be a day of judgment. And Paul says, that fire will reveal whether or not our works were done for the glory of God or whether they were done for selfish reasons, whether they were done in holiness or whether they were done in sinfulness. Paul may have in mind the great fires of the ancient world, maybe fires that he had heard of, maybe even fires that he had seen. Corinth itself was once burned to the ground by the Romans in 146 B.C. Rome was burned to the ground in A.D. 64, and throughout history we can think of the Great Fire of London in 1666, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, and the Great San Francisco Fire of 1906. In all of those instances, when the fire is done, when Rome burnt to the ground in A.D. 64, not everything was gone. Only those buildings that were built out of wood and straw and hay. 
All of those great structures that were built out of stone and concrete and the bridges that were built out of stone were still standing. They may have had marks of charring on them, but they were still there. I think Paul has that in mind. That fire always reveals what things are built from. Were they built to last? Or were they built out of material that is simply temporary and weak and vanishing? What sort of work, though, specifically is Paul speaking of? I mean, when, what, when Paul talks about building with gold, silver, precious stone, what is that exactly? What kind of work equals gold, silver, and precious stone. When he talks about building with hay, straw, and wood, what what is that exactly? Because the temptation here is to begin to read into these things all the things that we think are good works, right? Well, this, this definitely qualifies as gold, silver, and precious stones. This, this would be hay and wood. Many of preachers are tempted to do that. To simply say, this is what the gold and the silver and the precious stones are. But context is always the key. Right? Context is always the key to accurately understanding the Word of God. First of all, let me say that the work that Paul has in mind is the work that we do collectively as a church with regards to ministry. I want to say that up front. Because Paul is not, Paul is not specifically speaking about what each individual Christian does in his own life and with his own time. Now, while that matters, don't misunderstand me. Don't hear me saying that what you do in here matters and what you do out there doesn't matter. Not what Paul is saying. But I want to be fair to the text, and I think Paul has in mind the work that is done with regards to the church specifically. And here's why I say that, because going back to verse 9, you see, we have to ask the question, who is Paul addressing? Who is he talking about? And when we go back to verse 9, there he says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. The you in verse 9 is in the plural in the underlined Greek. You don't see that in the English? But it is you all are God's field. You all, the church in Corinth, are God's building. Then if you look at verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Every single one of those yous is in the plural. So we have in verse 9, they're all in the plural. We have in verse 16 and 17, they're all in the plural. Therefore, everything that is sandwiched in between, Paul is talking to the church collectively. You, church in Corinth, I built a foundation for you. So understand, he's not saying, I laid an individual foundation for every single one of you Christians who are in Corinth. He's saying, I laid a foundation for the church. That foundation was Jesus Christ, and it was solid. Now you, church in Corinth, 
I'm gone. You need to be careful about how you build upon that foundation. Be careful about what you do with the church and how you minister within the church. So what sort of work is Paul speaking of? What is the gold, the silver, the stone, the wood, the hay, the straw? Two things, I would say. First of all, recall that in chapters 1 and 2, Paul spends a lot of time railing against the church borrowing from the world, right? Borrowing from worldly wisdom. Don't look out at the world to see how do we do ministry within the church. Don't even look at the fastest growing successful mega churches and say, well, let's do what they're doing. Don't borrow from Starbucks or McDonald's and try to model their way of doing business because the church is not a business. He says specifically in chapter 2, for example, verses 1 to 5, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony, or I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I didn't come to you with worldly wisdom. I didn't come to you with lofty philosophy because I don't want your faith to rest in that, and I certainly don't want your faith to rest in me. I want your faith to rest in the power of God. And then he'll say in chapter 4, verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against another. So that's the second reason, the second uh, works that I think Paul is talking about. In other words, when he talks about works of gold, silver, and precious stones, He is talking about, number one, works that are not based on the wisdom of this world. Works that aren't borrowing from the world. And secondly, he is talking about works that are exclusively based upon that which God commands and prescribes in Scripture. Verse 4 Five, listen to this, Paul says, chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So he's also talking about works that are driven by faith, according to Romans 14, 23, right? Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So all of our good works, if you don't want them to be sinful good works, must be driven from a heart of faith in Christ, in the true gospel. 
But then also 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, the works of hay, straw, and wood that Paul is referring to are those works that, first of all, are based on the wisdom of this world, and second of all, are driven by a sinful, selfish motivation. I think this is part of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. One of the scariest passages in the entire Bible, uh, I think, where Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. Have we not prophesied and performed miracles? And even the demons obeyed. And Jesus will declare to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. For I have never known you. Well, wait a minute. Aren't these good works? They prophesied. They performed miracles. They casted out demons. Those are all good things. Those are all good works. What happened? Clearly, these works were driven from a sinful heart. The lesson that we have to learn from both that passage and from what Paul is talking about here is that regardless of what you do in ministry and in the church, everybody should be involved in some sort of ministry. And everybody is involved in a ministry, whether you realize it or not. And the question we have to ask ourselves is what drives that ministry? Is it driven by a heart of faith? And to bring the most amount of glory to the name of Christ or because we want others to think highly of us. We want people to see us working and serving. We want to be able to lay down at night and feel good about ourselves because we do good things in the church and for the church. Those are the works of straw and wood and hay that will be consumed. The only works that will survive the day of judgment are those that are done based on the word of God, on what God has commanded, and those works which are done from a heart of faith and for the glory of God and for no other reason. Then he says something quite interesting in verses 14 and 15. He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. All right. Heaven, right? Isn't that what he's talking about? Wait a minute. But then he says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So they are both going to be saved they are both going to enter into heaven, then what is this reward that Paul is talking about? You see, we need to understand that Paul is not talking about an unbeliever versus an unbeliever. Paul is describing two different kinds of believers. He's talking about two different kinds of believers. In other words, while every believer, while every believer will enter heaven, by faith alone, in Christ alone, heaven will not be the same for every believer. You need to know that. I'll say that again. While every believer will enter heaven by faith alone, 
in Christ alone. Heaven will not be the same for every believer. We know that from various passages in the Bible that we have to pull together. This is what's called systematic theology. This is one, but another is that we know that hell is not the same for everyone either. Not every unbeliever is tormented to the same extent in hell. For example, Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus gives the parable about a master who goes away, and while he's away, one of the servants is unfaithful and begins to mistreat his other masters or his other servants, his fellow servants. And then in verse 7, when the master returns, the master says this, verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, did not know his master's will and did what deserved a beating will receive a light. In other words, what Jesus is telling us is that hell is not going to be the same for your unbelieving neighbor who grew up in an atheist home, never heard the gospel or Jesus or the Bible, never set foot in the church, but he's a pretty good guy. You know, he's helpful, he's kind, he lends you all kinds of things, he's great to be around, but he just doesn't believe God exists. Hell's not going to be the same for him as it is for someone like Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot. There is a very special place reserved in hell for people like Adolf Hitler. It is not the same degree of torment, but nonetheless, it is torment for all those who will spend eternity there. But not only do we get that hell is not the same for every unbeliever, but apparently, according to Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives the parable of the ten minas, and this is interesting, because in Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives this parable where he says the master goes off on a journey, and he calls ten servants to himself, and he gives one mina to each servant. They all get the same thing, unlike the parable of the talents, where they get different um, values. They each get one mina, and a mina is about... Uh, three months' wages for a servant. Then he goes away on a long journey. And when he comes back, he calls three of them to himself. Not all of them, but he calls three to himself to give an account. One of them says, I made ten more with the one you gave me. The other one says, I made five more with the one you gave me. And then the third says, well, here's your mina back. I just buried it in the ground which you can have it back. Of course, that one is cast out into outer darkness and is severely punished. But then the two servants, the one who got 10 more, is given in charge of 10 cities. The one who received, who made five more, is put in charge of five cities. They both receive commendation and praise from their master. Well done, good and faithful servant but they're both not given the same reward. Their reward is commensurate with what they achieve with what their master has given them. They are both rewarded, and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, but they do not each receive the same reward. Hence, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
If the work that any believer has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, he will get into heaven, but only as through Thus, what we gather from these texts is that while every believer will receive the words, they will hear the words, well, well done, good and faithful servant. Every, sir, every believer will enter into heaven. Every believer will enjoy the new earth. Somehow and in some way and to some extent, heaven and the new earth will not be the same for every believer. For those who sought to do all of their work and to build upon the foundation of the church with gold and silver and precious stones, for those who pursued with all of their being and all of their zeal the pursuit of holiness and godliness and sought to pour out their lives for the glory of Christ, they will receive somehow a greater reward over those who did not. Now, to be clear, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that means. And we ought not to speak where God has not spoken. But the point is that what we do as Christians in the here and now, particularly with regards to the church, To be clear, if you want to avoid hell and enter into heaven, you simply need to believe. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Salvation is not about works. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. But if you want to receive the maximum amount of joy and bliss and pleasure that can be experienced in the afterlife, then I would encourage you to pour yourself out for the glory of Christ. There is a plaque in my home that sits on my kitchen counter that I enjoy looking at every day. And, and I have it on the kitchen counter for a reason. It's that child eye level. I hope my children see it regularly and remember it throughout their lives. But it's a simple phrase that says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is so true. In the end, only what we do for the glory and the honor of Christ will echo into eternity. Nothing else in this world matters. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for these words, though they may be difficult to hear. Father, we pray that you would use your holy word to compel us to 
pour ourselves out for your glory. In light of all that you have done for us, in light of all that Christ has done for us, Christ gave the whole of his life for us. It only makes sense that we would give the whole of our lives for Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us that desire in our heart to live out every moment of every day, to never be satisfied with where we are in our sanctification, to never think to ourselves, good enough. I've done good enough. But that we would always be striving to do more for your glory. Father, I pray this for myself. I pray this for all of us. In Christ's name, amen.